Lisa. Um, yeah, with Lisa out there kind of representing you guys and, uh, and I've seen the pathway in various stages of its development, I really had a sense of the excellence and the clinical um, kind of uh, standard that you guys have here at Connecticut Children's and I'm <clears throat> very glad today to also find out how warm and welcoming um, and friendly everybody is. So uh, thank you very much. So um, I don't have any financial disclosures. Um, and uh, there were a couple of parts of this research that were supported by some different student um, summer programs and then our um, pathways to clinical care is then um, the multinational um, uh, consensus group and that's supported in part by the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Um, and I have a couple of mentions of some medications towards the end of the talk that are off label. Um, so the scope today is kind of broad. We're going to talk about delirium and the presentation of delirium in pediatrics. We're going to show that the diagnosis and the screening for delirium is feasible in all pediatric patients. So even critically ill and intubated children, even developmentally delayed children, and even children under two years of age. I'm going to introduce the Cornell assessment for pediatric delirium, the CAT-D. Um, and show you the tool um, and share our experience at um, Memorial Sloan Kettering of implementing this in our pediatric units. Um, and then I'm gonna take you through kind of a brief overview of some of the um, risk factor and population um, information that we've been able to get about um, pediatric delirium since implementing the tool um, over the last five years. Um, and then we'll briefly touch on um, the management um, by looking at the pathway that we developed as well. So just to get us started um, with a patient. So this is a case, um, this was our, probably our first patient we really recognized delirium in an infant. Um, uh, we were taking care of a, a little girl with uh, stage four neuroblastoma, which in um, very young infants is actually, um, has a very good prognosis, but this particular presentation, she presented with some, uh, a really uh, bad presentation. So you had a large abdominal tumor, she had extensive bony metastasis um, in the cranium, and because of that, it had cut off uh, optic nerve function and she was blind. She also had opsoclonus myoclonus, which is a perineoplastic antibody-mediated um, complication of some subsets of neuroblastoma, um, and it's a very uncomfortable uh, syndrome for the children with the dancing feet, dancing eyes presentation. She also had, um, so she did have these favorable prognostic markers <coughs> and long-term was expected to survive this illness. But um, in her first um, cycle of chemotherapy, developed severe mucositis and was admitted to the hospital and the whole kind of process started. She was started on her IV fluids and then multiple medications for symptom management of the severe mucositis. Um, this progressed, I think, between the sensory deprivation and the, um, the other complications of her presentation. She had worsening agitation. Um, for sure, the sedatives were adding to this. She was inconsolable. They were going up. They were switching drugs. They were trying different things. Um, she ended up being transferred. We have a very, very close relationship with um, New York Presbyterian <coughs> Hospital, which is right across the street from Sloan Kettering. And they functioned as our PICU for a long, long, long time. Now we have um, 
what is essentially like a PICU light. We have like an oncologic PICU, so it's a five bed um, pediatric ICU that um, we manage all of our oncologic ICU patients, but um, we still have the Cornell PICU across the street. So at this time, we were still sending all of our ICU patients across the street. She went over there and that's how um, uh, Dr. Silver and Dr. Traub and I started to collaborate on what to do with this baby. So. Um, so she was deeply sedated and alternating between these two states of being deeply sedated and apneic on the ventilator or um, agitated and pulling out the lines and fighting the vent anytime they would back off of sedation. So they're stuck. Now her counts are recovering. This baby's ready for her next cycle of chemotherapy, but they couldn't get her extubated because of this agitation. So um, <clears throat> psychiatry was consulted, but unfortunately it was already PICU day 11. So this had been going on for quite some time. Um, so this is the presentation on, in which they found her and they diagnosed delirium on that day. Um, they uh, started um, very small uh, doses of Haldol every six hours IV and within 24 hours her agitation had started to improve. Um, she was able to wean the other sedatives and they were able to better manage her airway and able to quickly get her extubated. Um, and she was able to start the rest of her treatment. Um, happy to say we still see this child in long-term follow-up. She's now like 10 years old and attends a school um, for the blind in Florida and she's delightful. <clears throat> so what is delirium? What are we really talking about here? I think over the years it has gone by many names. All of these are found in the literature and um, sometimes under different disciplines, kind of finding a different way of uh, talking about it, uh, sometimes more um, informally. <laughs> Subacute befuddlement is my favorite. Uh, I think it was from a kind of obscure geriatrics paper. Um, <laughs> Um, but uh, let's go with the DSM-5 definition, um, which uh, reads as the global cerebral dysfunction caused by a direct physiologic consequence of a medical condition or substance, substance intoxication or withdrawal or multiple of these etiologies. The symptoms um, is a core disturbance of arousal. And by that, the DSM means awareness and attention in the old DSM, it used to be called uh, consciousness. So we're really looking at level of consciousness here. Um, they brought in the terms awareness and attention to bring more subtlety to this so that we can recognize um, a, a more subtle presentation. Um, the second core symptom is uh, any kind of cognitive change. So there's really a, a, a plethora of presentations. You can have memory impairment, language impairments, perceptual disturbances, um, changes in motor activity or changes in the sleep-wake cycle. Um, there's always an underlying medical cause. That's one of the criterion. And it has an acute onset and fluctuating course. So that's going to become very important as we try to differentiate delirium from other kinds of states of presenting. Again, here's another kind of list of all the different types of symptoms. We have hyperactive and hypoactive and mixed presentations of delirium. So you'll see that there are certain things like hypervigilance that would present in, <clears throat> in the hyperactive uh, um, presentation and, the, and drowsiness or sedation um, presenting in the hypoactive. And the same thing with the psychomotor symptoms, either 
agitated or psychomotor retarded. So this is um, the signifiers, the specifiers that um, the DSM gives us. It's ways of classifying delirium. Um, so this is just so we can look at it um, on the official uh, uh, phenomenology here. So we have the substance-induced uh, designation, we have medication-induced, we have delirium due to um, a medical condition and multiple etiologies. And, um, if you had to guess which one is the most common, anybody want to take a guess which one is the most common of those five? Number five. Yeah, number five. Um, usually, you know, and you'll see this because the patient will have been tolerating their um, PCA opiates the week before, but then when they get a fever, they get delirious. And it's not one or the other, it's both together. Um, we have acute and persistent designations in case you need to be documenting that, and then we have um, the hyperactive, hypoactive, and mixed um, active. And um, you know, for a long, long time, we were recognizing the hyperactive as the most common as the as the presentation of delirium. But it turns out that's actually the least common presentation of delirium. We have um, hypoactive and the mixed are are much more common and usually about in most studies show about the same. Um, and then hyperactive is something around 10%. Um, so what are the different etiologies? There are so many. Um, there's, these are the kind of frequent flyers. Um, we have the underlying disease, often infection, for reasons we're gonna go a little bit more into, um, and shock, um, hypoxia, neoplasms, seizures, metabolic abnormalities. These are some of the things you want to be thinking about when you're looking at the patient. Um, and hopefully delirium is not your only symptom and you can kind of correlate to the rest of what is going on with your patient. Um, there's often iatrogenic or pharmacologic things that we're doing um, to trigger delirium. We're going to talk a lot about um, the post-operative presentation uh, with anesthesia and the kinds of medications that children get around surgery. Um, but the lines and tubes are also a factor. Um, and then there's a lot of environmental factors about being in the hospital. Um, and, uh, and, and primarily those are, are mediated, we think, by sleep disruption. Um, but potentially somewhat overstimulating um, for, for the youngest kids, but, but most likely from sleep disruption. And immobilization. Immobilization is really um, emerging as a, as a major factor in um, ICU uh, outcomes. So, um, so with all these different presentations, how do we understand the pathophysiology of delirium? So this um, was published in 2008 by Jose Maldonado. Um, in, a, in, a, in a kind of a sly way, he called this the simple pathoetiologic mo model of delirium. Um, but I think what he was really trying to do, that leading up until this, there were a lot of competing papers and theories about delirium. You know, was it the anticholinergic disturbance? Was it the circadian rhythm problems? Was it inflammation? Um, and what he did was show kind of how all of these things fit together. And um, this is a very helpful quote in sort of his approach um, to say it's not, it's not one of these things, but two or more, if not all, are acting together to lead 
to this biochemical derangement um, and ultimately to the complex cognitive behavioral changes characteristic of delirium. So um, I don't know, as, as silly and, and complicated as that first diagram is, it really helps me just thinking about how complex brain physiology is and why these um, presentations may vary so much from patient to patient. So I pulled out the main kind of players here and what the different pathways are, just so we can examine them a little bit more. Um, we've got our neurotransmitters, we've got GABA, NMDA glutamate, norepinephrine, we've got cytokines, calcium, dopamine, uh, melatonin, circadian rhythms, um, mitochondria dysfunction, um, HPA axis, cortisol, um, so if you kind of look at these by themselves and you think about um, disease processes that we know in and particularly in critical illness, a lot of these things like the cytokines, the HPA axis, mitochondrial dysfunction, these are things that are common in many organ damage, um, uh, many, many um, uh, outcomes in, in uh, processes in critical illness. And so that's part of what we're seeing here. Um, the other part is that this is happening in the brain. The organ that we're talking about is the brain, and so we have all of the, the, re the regular players there. So hopefully that <clears throat> simplifies that a little bit. And then there's just another couple of um, key thoughts that hypoxia and inflammation are often the beginning of the cascade. Um, and then blood-brain barrier disruption is a major player. Um, and I think in, in uh, kids and in kids with, younger kids and in kids with um, CNS disease or brain tumors, this is a major issue. This is also that sort of presentation I mentioned earlier about the kid that's been um, chucking along just fine on a cocktail of symptom management medications and then gets the fever and gets delirious. And that's because the blood-brain barrier gets leaky and all of these things flood into the brain at much higher levels and at much different um, uh, uh, combinations than would normally be uh, found in the CNS. You get disruption of second messengers, so these are the downstream things, and then the neurotransmitter disruptions. And so there are some typical patterns with the different presentations of delirium that they get into that. So how do we make this diagnosis? Well, it's a clinical diagnosis. Um, we have to examine the patient. Um, it's, it's really representing a change from the baseline of the patient. We need to be corroborating with their caregivers. And we're lucky in some ways in pediatrics. Um, adults don't always have someone at the bedside. Obviously, kids don't always have someone at the bedside, but um, often do. And um, we can usually use caregivers to help us denote a change from baseline. Um, and uh, we want to be looking at the patient with this developmental lens, which pediatricians and pediatric nurses are experts at already, um, and be considering all of these domains of the diagnosis of delirium from this developmental lens. So, um, and really what it, what it often comes down to, and our colleague in the Netherlands, Jan Sheffeld, wrote um, a couple of papers that um, really made this so clear. It's when you walk in the room and the parent is kind of standing there next to the bed and going, this isn't my child right now. This is not her, this is not him. Um, and so sometimes that core question at the heart of the exam sort of gives you the information that you need. And then you can kind of break it down into the different symptoms. So we did um, want to document that this is a reliable diagnosis, that, that you know, we, 
consider the gold standard to be the exam of a pediatric developmental expert, someone who knows about delirium. Um, and so we used uh, two of the child psychiatrists, several of the child psychiatrists, but we did two blinded child psych evaluations um, on PICU patients, and we found uh, that it was reliable. We had high agreement between um, these blinded assessments, even when we were examining babies, even when we were looking at kids who were developmentally delayed and critically sick um, or intubated children. So if you kind of agree on what the criteria are and you understand um, what the symptoms are that you're looking for, um, it is a reliable diagnosis. Um, so thinking about the differential, the differential diagnosis for delirium is kind of all of the things that um, happen, the whole experience of a pediatric patient in the hospital. Um, you could be walking into the room and seeing an inconsolable baby who's got untreated pain. Um, so you could be looking at a pain crisis. You could be seeing different presentations of adjustment disorders. Um, we could be seeing regressed sick behaviors. Um, potentially selective mutism, a kid who's new, newly diagnosed, um, a little bit traumatized, maybe very traumatized. Um, I think in, in a general pediatric hospital like here, you guys are going to see much more than, than I see at Sloan Kettering where everybody's got a cancer diagnosis. So you're going to see more of the psychiatric presentations on your differential. Um, but you know, remember that childhood onset psychosis is pretty rare. Um, delirium is much more common than childhood onset psychosis. So. Um, there are probably other things in the differential you can think about. But so we needed to be able to differentiate that. How do you have a tool um, that can help you uh, determine um, all of these different things? How do you weed out the patients that are really having some kind of brain dysfunction from the patient that's just... Um, not feeling good, you know, obviously sick in the hospital, um, having pain, and all of these other things. So we started looking for um, screening tool options, um, and what we found was the the best one that we could. We we all agreed that we needed to have something observational. You can't be um, kind of putting a child through the paces of a of a diagnostic exam, um, and then requiring. Um, a kid who's obviously been flagged for some kind of distress, some kind of issue. These are not the like adorable kind of mayor of the floor kind of kid that you're going to be doing the exam on. Um, these are the kids that are not okay. So we needed it to be observational. We can't require participation. Um, and we needed to be able to capture the whole range of delirium presentations. It can't be just the agitated child because that's kind of easy to spot anyway. Um, so we found this um, pediatric anesthesia emergence delirium scale. This had been a tool um, developed by Sikich, um a few years before, and it was observational, but it was really looking at the um, anesthesia presentations. And so looking at the um, post-op window, it was a snapshot kind of point in time exam of a kid and trying to um, capture if they were agitated, the agitated delirium. Um, because those were the kids that were a problem for the anesthesiologist. You know, I mean, there were definitely, I'm sure, hypoactively delirious children in the post-operative period. They just were easily managed and, and gotten out to the floor or to their parents or wherever they were going. Um, and so that wasn't what their scale was developed for, but we needed to be able to capture all of those presentations. So um, 
There are elements on the screen that are consistent with the diagnostic criteria. They're not a one-to-one -one correlation with consciousness and cognition and orientation, but we believe that as a whole, they capture um, the presentation of delirium. I'm gonna show you those um, in just a minute. So the CAPD is um, our tool. It, uh, it can be used in pediatric patients of all ages. It was validated in zero to 21, because those are the ages of the patients in, in the hospital. But if you can do it on a 21-year-old, there's no reason you can't do it on a 29-year-old or 35-year-old. Um, including intubated children, it is observational. It's really meant for nurses. We realized that um, we needed to capture the whole experience of the patient that day because delirium can wax and wane. You can get called that someone's agitated or confused or, you know, for instance, like the nurse writes down alert and oriented times three in the morning and then you go in and the patient's like loopy out of their mind, you know, four or five hours later. So this is the fluctuating presentation. So we needed to be able to capture the whole shift. Um, so this is a cumulative assessment. The nurse is, is, is interacting with the patient on her regular his or her regular um, care of the patient over the shift and then fills out the CAPD towards the end of the shift. It takes less than two minutes. <clears throat> so the assessment starts um, in a validated study and the way that we've implemented it. It starts with a single question about um, agitation and sedation. This is like the consciousness scale, um, the, the RAS. Um, and so this ranges from um, minus five, which is coma, um, unarousable, up to plus four, which is combative. So this differs from the Glasgow coma scale, which like stops at zero. Um, this goes the whole range of agitated and sedated. Um, and then you go on to ask, uh, ask yourself the uh, CAPD questions. So does the child make eye contact with the caregiver? Are the child's actions purposeful? Is the child aware of his or her surroundings? Does the child communicate needs and wants? Is the child restless, inconsolable, underactive, and does it take the child a long time to respond to interactions? So we added seven and eight um, and made some other changes to the wording and the presentation and the scoring of the tool um, to capture the hypoactive delirium. We realized though that um, even as straightforward as that was, it was still kind of tricky to be asking these questions about babies and be thinking about what, what we should be seeing. Um, so um, we knew that the nurse was the best person to be doing the, the screen because of their interactions with the patient, because they're not wearing the white coat, because they get to know them and um, uh, work closely with them over the day and they have all the different um, kind of multiple points of contact. Um, and they're also experts in pediatric development. They know when a kid is like not themselves, not okay. Um, but they needed some anchor points. So we created a companion bedside reference tool that goes with the CAPD. We developed it from classic developmental texts. We tried to adjust it for the way that um, developmental behaviors would present in the hospital. Um, so like for instance, if it said, you know, that a two-year-old should be able to jump, we didn't include that part because the, you're not going to be, you know, assessing that in most, most of your ICU patients. Um, and we vetted all these languages and skills. We worked closely with nursing. So just as an example, um, these are just some of the anchor points. The actual anchor point scale um, starts at a younger age, but just to give you the, the, a, a taste of it. 
for the first question, does the child make eye contact with the caregiver? Um, it ranges from eight weeks following a moving object or caregiver past the midline regarding the examiner's hand, holding the object, and um, having focused attention um, up to 28 weeks and beyond where the child can hold the gaze, prefers the primary parent, and looks at the speaker. And then number four is also a nice example of the range of um, how does the child communicate needs and wants. Um, at eight weeks, cries when hungry or uncomfortable. And the corollary of that would be then stops crying when those needs are met, right? So that's how a baby communicates. Um, by 28 weeks, vocalizes or indicates hunger, discomfort, curiosity, um, and noticing their surroundings, and then using words as they're getting older. So just, these are really like, um, just a quick reference for the nurse to be able to go like, yes, 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 no, 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 we're not there. Um, so our valid, uh, our validity study uh, showed that the CAPD had um, adequate sensitivity and specificity for a screening tool. Um, you know, would we have loved for it to have much higher specificity? That would have been great, and then we could have called it a diagnosis, and that would have been the end of it. Um, but it is a screening tool, and it was really, really important to us to be able to use it in the entire population. And so this is why um, some of the specificity is a little lower, because if you have a kid with um, an abnormal baseline, atypical brain or atypical behavioral presentation, it's gonna be a little trickier, and you may need to spend more time, you may need to understand more about the baseline, and so this is gonna require more assessment. So it is a screening tool. Um, it is picking up 96% um, sensitivity in the developmentally delayed, but you need to do more assessment, so the specificity is, is a little lower. Um, in our first cohort, our delirium rate was 20%. This is in our um, pediatric ICU at Cornell, um, and the cutoff point for this, for this scale was nine. So we then um, implemented, kind of similar to what you guys are doing, um, we implemented this um, at our, in our pediatric program at Memorial Sloan Kettering. So we have uh, our inpatient uh, oncology unit and um, by that point we did have our, our little PICU. <clears throat> so um, this is our experience with that. We did uh, training and implementation over about three months and then we reviewed um, we reviewed that, and I'm just gonna show you some of the outcomes of that. We showed that the nurses, they actually did pretty well on our quiz. I think our questions were a little too easy. Um, I'm not, I have to work on my multiple choice question writing. Um, but, but they did improve with the training, um, and their confidence in assessing the mental status of children went up significantly from T1 to T2, which is the initial training period. Um, it's still not great. Like they still feel like they need um, support and education when it comes to assessing the mental status of kids, both um, under two and over two. Um, so this is an area ripe for ongoing nursing, um, QA, and education. We had good compliance with the screen. Of course, our, our nursing leadership wanted 100%, but um, we were pretty happy that they were they were doing it. Um, and uh, it was a little bit easier for the night shift to get it done. I think they were maybe just a little less hectic um, than the, the day shift at the end of their shift. Um, and all about 95% of hospital days for, for each child included at least one delirium screen. Um, so 
The next section I want to take you through is just some of the things that we've learned since implementing the CAPD. Um, this was a study um, led by um, our PICU collaborator, Dr. Traub. Of course, pediatric ICUs have um, a lot of contact with each other, and so there's some nice consortiums, and she was able to collaborate with um, 25 different hospitals across the U.S. and internationally and look um, at, uh, I think it was two, two study days um, that they did, and they all did the CAPD on the same day and looked at the prevalence of delirium in all the hospitals. So there were 994 subjects, um, and there was 13%. Um, so this is like the snapshot of what an ICU looks like on a given day, right? 13% um, in coma, 25% were delirious, and 62% were delirium-free and coma-free. So we're just kind of taking these pictures, snapshots of what this looks like. Um, this is um, a overview of our uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering um, inpatient population, uh, just to give you a sense of the range of age and primary diagnosis. The blue is brain tumors, um, orange is leukemia. You can see that. Neuroblastoma, we have a big neuroblastoma program, so some of those. Um, sarcomas and other. We have it. We and our inpatient um, floor also has our transplants. So um, it was about 18% of the patients admitted had a transplant history. Um, about 5% had a DNR status. Were, were had been made DNR, um, and 24% uh, had CNS disease. These are what we were thinking about as being potentially high risk um, populations. Um, we ended up getting a delirium rate in our hospitalized children with cancer of 18.8%. Um, the risk factors, the independent risk factors that came out from this study um, showed the younger population, um, so had a two and a half times greater risk of, being del of becoming delirious in the hospital. Um, brain tumors and um, surgery, post-op patients, and then um, benzodiazepine exposure um, held up as an independent predictor. Uh, opiate exposure did not, anticholinergic exposure did not. Um, so there's a little more information about the risk factor analysis, and I just wanted to point out some of these things that you know really were interesting to us. One is that the fever neutropenia population, um, zero out of 85 of those children developed uh, delirium. Um, all three of the patients who died developed delirium, and I think that um, just as my other hat as the um, palliative care uh, hat, uh, I think it's important that we recognize that delirium as part of the end-of-life uh, experience and that families receive psychoeducation and support and the patients receive expert symptom management um, around end-of-life with delirium. Um, we did find an association with steroids. It um, almost reached significance. Um, we think that that will be true with larger groups. And then there was these two factors that um, speak to the nutritional status of patients and how important that is, that low albumin um, uh, was a risk factor and uh, that TPN actually was a protective factor, that any day that a child was getting TPN, they actually had less of a chance, about a, half, as, half as great of a chance of, of developing delirium. Um, so that was really interesting. I think our ICU um, colleagues were thinking that it was gonna be more the enteral 
feedings had less of a risk versus the TPN, but TPN itself was actually, I see some skepticism. <laughs> um, so, and, and that also then we kind of looked at some of these smaller subsets. Um, so in the pediatric CICU, there was a much higher rate of delirium. They developed delirium very fast in the first day. Um, it was also the younger kids, kids who had a, a longer exposure to cardiopulmonary bypass and um, had benzodiazepine exposures. Um, ECMO patients, 100% of them had delirium at some point um, during their ECMO treatments. So we wanted to do a little deeper dive into the benzodiazepine picture because this is something that's had a bad rap for a long time, but so did opiates, and opiates didn't really hold up as a um, association uh, independently in, in, our, in our previous studies. So um, this was uh, Dr. Traub's lab at Cornell. They did all PICU admissions um, from January to June. They examined the benzodiazepine exposure and then the next day delirium. So this is now a temporal relationship, not just an association over the hospitalization. Um, and they used some complicated statistics with pseudo-randomized um, controls uh, to control for the confounding um, factors of cognitive status, mechanical ventilation, and opiates. Um, and they found a very strong temporal relationship, an odds ratio of 3.3, and a dose-response relationship with um, benzodiazepines. So we're getting closer to uh, support for the idea that benzos are actually causing some of, some of the delirium that we have. We also found um, an association um, similarly temporally related with red blood cell transfusions. Um, children who had a red blood cell transfusion were twice as likely to be delirious in the 72 hours after the red blood cell transfusion. Um, and that was controlled for anemia. Anemia was not associated with delirium by itself. Um, and we're thinking that this might have something to do with the inflammation taking place during a transfusion. Um, the post-operative population is also at risk. Um, these were 93 post-operative um, kids in the PICU, non-elective major surgeries. 66% of them were delirious at some point in their um, post-operative stay and um, much higher in the under one-year-old group, so um, about 86%. Um, so, there's a whole movement, and I'm sure you guys are aware, know about the ICU bundles, and this is really looking at how so many of the um, management decisions and outcomes are tied together. And so if you're measuring one, you kind of get changes in the other, and trying to implement one thing um, without controlling for the other things, it was all mixed together. So they started um, realizing that there needed to just be a, a major shift in ICU management, and this has been happening um, over the last you know, 10, 12 years. Um, and it, it usually includes some combination of delirium screening and prevention, sedation, pain, and withdrawal protocols that are, um, that are systematized and, and using validated tools. Um, early mobilization of patients uh, in the ICU, even intubated patients. Um, and there's some wonderful videos of um, walking with intubated patients on the um, Johns Hopkins uh, Pediatrics website. It's called the Pick You Up um, Initiative, which is really cute. 
Um, so they have been able to drastically reduce delirium rates and, and improve many other ICU outcomes. And so there was a study um, doing this in pediatrics, um, and the CAPD was the delirium screen that was included, and they reduced delirium rates from 19 to 11%. CAPTI's now been translated and validated in multiple languages. Um, I'm not going to go through this again, except that there are a couple of other outcome studies um, coming, and this is um, these are the early ones. There are also some some more that are that are pending right now. But um, patients with delirium have twice the length of stay. They have an 85% increase in PICU costs um, per day. Uh, and they have a four times greater risk of dying in the hospital. So um, just very, very briefly, and I want to save some time for your questions as well. Um, um, this was uh, just an overview of our pathway that was developed with the American Academy of Channelists and Psychiatry Physically Ill Child Committee. This is basically our consultation liaison psychiatrists across the country and in Canada. Um, and it's a very vibrant and supportive group. A lot of these hospitals have like one person doing this, maybe like a couple of part-time FTEs. And um, so really having this community um, online and, and by phone has been uh, a really helped um, kind of standardize care and move the field forward. Um, we created a consensus group and did a review of the literature and um, tried to develop some pathways that could be implemented um, in lots of settings, so adapted for, for a local hospital. Um, this is our pathway. Um, Kind of starts with prevention measures, goes into the screening process. Um, kind of this red diamond is that is is um, highlighting that uh, if you have a positive screen, you really need to do a bedside clinical assessment of the patient. Someone needs to go and examine that patient and determine if you do have a high clinical suspicion of delirium. Um, I'll just asterisk here that it doesn't have to be a definitive diagnosis. You may still have a couple of working um, differentials as you're working up the patient and as you're trying to start the management, um, but that's okay because you need to have a, a, a low threshold for, for, um, for worrying about these kinds of things. They can be dangerous. They can signify dangerous things and you want to be on top of it. And so, you know, it's okay to start, you know, maybe um, rotating an opiate or um, trying to treat the pain and continue your assessment while you're doing the other workup for delirium. Um, that's what I just said. We want to start simultaneously managing and working out the causes. Um, and you guys have all of these things in your own delirium pathway, so I'm not going to take you through this step by step. Um, the last thing I just wanted to say, people often ask about um, psychotropics. Um, when I'm talking about psychotropics, whether it's with parents or with um, pediatric clinicians, I really talk about three reasons that we might use a psychotropic medication in a child. One is safety, so harm to threat, threat of harm to self or others. Um, one is suffering, uh, so lots of trying to determine if a symptom has reached a point where we really think it's it's disruptive. Sleep, um, anxiety, restlessness um, for, cer for certain hallucinations. 
Um, and, and in my setting, treatment disruption. So if they can't um, be safe in the ICU, if they can't get their chemotherapy safely, you know, these are other reasons to use psychotropics. And I'm, uh, these are my reasons for any psychotropics, whether we're treating mood disturbances or sleep or, um, or delirium. So um, this kind of translates to lots of settings. We're not treating a CAPD score. So we don't go, oh, okay, they have a positive screen. When their CAPD score hits um, 15, we'll start the quetiapine. Like that is not the management. So it's a ongoing assessment. Um, and I think I'm gonna stop. We have some safety data on quetiapine and um, that's generally our drug of choice. We also developed a handout of flyer for parents. Um, it's available. Um, at the links um, that are also listed on my bibliography. Um, and I wanted to say thank you for all of my collaborators. Um, and this is a final thought. That's it. Thank you so much. Glad to take questions.